Morning, church. Um, I have the honor to uh, invite Pastor Jeff up here, and um, we'll uh, <laughs> come on up here, Pastor Jeff. <laughs> um, so just so you guys know, um, many of you may have been here. Uh, about a year and a half ago, we had a, a conference here at the church, and we got to meet a lot of um, uh, great people in the southeast area that are doing ministry in different areas. Pastor Jeff is in Nashville. He, he grew up and was raised in California. What, you were assistant pastor with uh, Chuck's Church out in I Costa was. Mesa. Yes. And, um, and then led a uh, church fellowship out there for a number of years, I think Newport? Newport Beach. Newport Beach. Yeah. And now him and his family uh, moved to Nashville a couple of years ago, and they live there. He's part of the CGN leadership team. And um, this morning, we have the honor to hear from Pastor Jeff. So uh, give a Calvary Restore welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we had such a great time when we were here almost two years ago. And um, I brought my granddaughters uh, 10 and 7 then, now they were 8 and 5. Uh, and when we left here, they're like, can we go to that church? <laughs> and uh, because it, this church reminded us so much of the church I pastored for 15 years in Newport Beach, and um, just your hospitality and your warmth, and it was just a great experience. And um, Pastor Victor and just the staff here, so great. I'm just so happy to be here. And to be with you all this morning, and the privilege of sharing God's word with you, I, I'm going to disappoint my brother because we're actually going to camp out <laughs> in Exodus chapter 34. So if you want to turn there, um, that's what we'll be this morning. Um, I, when he was saying that, I was just kind of laughing in my head, like, well, we're going to camp out in a couple of verses there. <laughs> Um, in his book, uh, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozier said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I love that quote, but it begs the question, what is the first thing that comes into your mind when you think about God? Not long ago, I asked a, a young woman that question, and her answer was, the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about God is that he's a distant, disconnected, angry, judgmental God. And I just was taken back, but as I thought about it, I thought, you know what, that's probably a common feeling that many people think about when they think about God in the world, because they don't know the God of the Bible, they only know what others have told them or what they've learned through tradition or what they look in the world and they make this, this thing. But when we think about that, we need to think, well, what should be the first thing that comes to our, in our mind when we think about God? Hermeneutics, the study of the Bible, is where we, we find certain laws or principles that we should follow when preparing for a message. And um, one of those is known as the law of first mention. And the law of first mention basically means that to understand a particular doctrine, we must find the first place that it's mentioned in Scripture and study it deeply. And um, so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. But before we do that, I would really like us to... 
before we look at the character of God, I'd really like to, to really dig in and understand the, te- the context before giving the text, which is kind of important. The verses that we're going to be discovering um, is not only the first mention of God's character in the Bible, it's also the most quoted Bible verse in the Bible, quoted over 20 times throughout the Word of God, which I thought was interesting. But it, to put it in context, we have to think about from the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and he created the animal life and mankind on the sixth day, and on the seventh day he, re- he rested. And um, after that, he chose God's children, the children of Israel, and made a covenant with them, promising to, to multiply them. And we see in the book of Exodus that God had multiplied the nation of Israel tremendously. But we also found in the book of Exodus that they were enslaved by the Egyptians. And so they were in this enslavement for over 430 years. And then God raises up a man named Moses. Uh, Moses came to set them free from their slavery, and God set them on a trek to the promised land. Now, what's interesting about this trek, and always makes me crack up, is that if you and I were to take this trek, and you were a serious hiker, it would take about 12 days. God set them on a different route. He set them on a route that would take about one year. If you know the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, you learned that it took them 40 years. And the reason it took them 40 years is that God needed to teach them a lesson to prepare them to living, into the pro- living in the promised land. And like most human beings, we're not always obedient to the things that God says. And so God was wanting to teach them these lessons. And so the first thing we see that he gives them the Ten Commandments to live by. He says, man, if you, if you follow these Ten Commandments, you're going to have a good life. And then after that, he gives him instructions to build the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was a place that God's children would not only know the law of God and, and understand how to live a good life, but they could be in the presence of God. And so the tabernacle is a place that he could be in the presence so they, of the God that gives life. Now, before we move on, I just want to read the first two commandments that we find in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 5. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, and you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So these are the first two commandments that God gave to them. And not long after these commandments were given, they started to build the tabernacle. But before that, Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God as he did a second time, but this time was to make a partnership agreement with God. And while Moses was up on the mountain in the presence of God, the children of Israel were in the valley sinning against God, breaking the first two commandments. Moses in the presence of God up on the mountain, the children of Israel in the valley sinning against God as they took their gold and melted it melted it down and into the image 
of a heifer or a cow, um, and they worshipped it. So immediately we see something breaking here. Now, what's interesting is that God's anger was tremendous at this. But Moses intercedes for them. Moses intercedes for the children of Israel, reminding God of his promises to keep his covenant. And then we read in um, Exodus chapter 33, verses 17 through 18, he says, Moses says, please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will make all my goodness pass before you. And so what we're going to be seeing here is all God's goodness is his character. And we're going to be looking at these five attributes of God that are just amazing. But before we read these, these verses that are not only the first mention of God's character, but also the most quoted verses in the Bible, before we read them, I want to paint the picture of what's happening here. So Moses is up on the mountain, and he's beginning to worship God. And as he's worshiping God, I can almost see him standing there with his hands raised in the heavens, looking up into the heavens, crying out to God. And then all of a sudden, this cloud descends from the heavens. I wish we had smoke machines right now. Because <laughs> you could see the clouds descending from the heavens. And Moses is there worshiping God. And what we read in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, is God's uh, response to Moses of wanting to see his goodness and God saying this, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving inequity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the inequity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Can we pray before we move on? Father, we're so thankful for the word of God. Lord, that we can read about your character, that we can understand who you are. But I pray right now, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to a greater understanding of who you are, that we could see you in your true character as we look at the attributes of God that you would reveal to us that you are who you say that you are. And so we're so thankful for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. So the, word, the, the words, the Lord, the Lord, in Hebrew would be Yahweh, Yahweh. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if somebody said something twice, you'd probably listen. If God says something twice, you should definitely listen. Yahweh, Yahweh, the creator and the sustainer of all, everything, is saying, hey, you guys, listen, this is who I am. This is my character. These are my attributes. This is my goodness. And I just love that there Moses is just worshiping God, and God descends in this from the heavens in this cloud and says, this is my goodness, Moses. This is who I am. And it's the first time that we see this happening in the Bible, and he gives these Five amazing attributes. And it's like this beautiful picture of his attributes. And all of a sudden, it's like, ooh, he hits you in the gut. And he says, but my judgments will be on your third and fourth generations. You're like, what was that about? 
God, you were doing good in verse 6. What happened in verse 7? It's interesting because before we can truly understand the judgment of God, we must first understand the goodness of God. So what we're going to do is look at the goodness of God, and then we'll look at the judgment of God through the lens of God's goodness. The first thing that God says about himself is that he is merciful. He is merciful. The, the Hebrew word is raum, and it's mostly translated compassionate. God is Yahweh, Yahweh is compassionate. This is a very interesting Hebrew word. In fact, to the Jewish mind, he would describe being compassionate as being womb-like. Womb-like. And after the Babylonian exile as a city in Jerusalem is being restored, God said this in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Womb-like. When I read this, I'm reminded of um, Saturday morning, May 18th, 1985. I was in the backyard with a friend of mine building a deck, and my wife walks out and big smile on her face, and she says, okay, it's time. Time? Yes, time. She had been pregnant for nine months, and today was the day. So we drove out to the hospital. We get to the hospital, and we're all excited and ready to give birth to this baby. And um, she goes into labor. She becomes dilated, and everything's going well. But then after many, 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 many hours, the doctor says, we're going to have to perform a cesarean. Apparently, our son was a brow baby. And what a brow baby is, is the, ch the, tent, the chin becomes untucked and like this. And so uh, the baby's forehead is resting on the, the birth canal. And so that's why they had to do a cesarean. So when, the, when our baby boy, Tyler, which is now 37, time goes by faster. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I've just felt really old. Um, so he comes out of the birth canal, and he's got this indention on his forehead. It looks like a V. Uh, it's so pronounced that the surgeon kindly said he looks a little like E.T. Okay, no, some of you guys know who E.T. is. Some of you probably like, who's E.T.? Go home, look it up on Wikipedia. You'll know who E.T. is. I didn't, I thought it was a little bit funny. I could tell that my wife didn't think it was so funny. But anyway, what, that's not the amazing thing to me, though. The amazing thing was after our baby was born, my wife is holding our baby to her, to her chest and just gazing at him. And gazing at him in a way as though her, her deepest desire was to take his place. That he would not have to experience the consequence of physical birth. This is, this is the compassion that God has for you and I. He holds us to his breast and he looks at it and saying, I wish I could take your place so you would not have to suffer the consequences of not being born again. When we think about that, God is just, that's who God in heaven is. That's his character. 
It's interesting because Jesus had this same look in his eye when he looked over Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 and 38. It says, but when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is truly, uh, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So here we have, this, we have God looking at us with this womb-like compassion, and now we have Jesus looking at the world with the same sort of compassion. When I think about Jesus looking at the world today, he's, he's looking at it as though they're sheep without a shepherd. They're, there's the, they've never met the true shepherd, Jesus Christ. There's no one to feed them, no one to lead them. And I can almost see in his eyes looking at the children of Israel over the, the, the city of Jerusalem, looking at them saying, man, I just, my deepest desire is to take the place, take your place. And in fact, he did. He took their place. Their sins were imputed upon him and his righteousness on them so that they may have life in that more abundantly. You see, this is the compassion of God, the Father. It's the compassion of God, the Son. And by Jesus' statements, it's to be our compassionate to one another. This is how we're to look at the world, with compassion. 1 John, John 3.16 says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You see, this was God's plan that that same compassion that God the Father, God the Son has, that his sons and daughters in the world would have, that we would make an impact on the world around us. So I need a little audience participation. And I've not done well at this before when I've taught this, so I'm hoping you guys can change that for me. So what we're going to do, because I want you to leave your understanding knowing this first, so... We're going to say, Yahweh, Yahweh is compassionate. Can we do that together? Okay. Yahweh, Yahweh is compassionate. We're starting off really well. This is so good. (laughs) The second thing that we see is that he is gracious. The Hebrew word is hanunun. And this word is used 47 times in the Old Testament. And it means gracious or merciful. The word is solely used as a descriptive term of God. I love how one person defined it. One person defined it this way. Being gracious is showing favor to the most unfavorable. It's showing favor to the most unfavorable. When I read this, my mind immediately went to Saul. There Saul was out to set out to persecute the church. And in Acts chapter 9, we, we're going to read what happened to Saul. He's probably the most unfavorable person on the planet at that time. And yet, what does Jesus do? In Acts chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, it says then Saul fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So listen. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? 
Is the Lord gracious? Oh my goodness. Here Saul's out to persecute the church, to kill them if he has to. And the Lord meets him and he knocks him to the ground and he brings him to the place to where he's trembling and astonished saying, Lord, what would you have me to do? This is God's graciousness towards human beings. So Saul, the most unfavorable human being on earth, received the favor of the Lord Jesus himself and was trembling and astonished. One person said that the Torah is the revelation of grace and truth, but Jesus is the realization. And I love that because that just opens up the door for John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18 where he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John, this is John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, this was he whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. What an amazing verse of describing not only God the Father's graciousness, but God the Son's graciousness. And we are to be gracious too. Okay, here we go. You know what to do. Compassionate and gracious. Yahweh, Yahweh is compassionate and gracious. Oh, you guys are, you guys are good. I'm going to have to send this video down to the guy who was in Florida because, uh, just kidding, they were good. <laughs> the next thing we see is that he was long-suffering. This is a great word. Um, in Hebrew, it's arik, and it's an adjective, adjective meaning long or drawn out. Slow to anger. Now, some might be saying right now, see, God does get angry. Yes, he does get angry. So we're going to apply the law of first mention again. And we're going to look at the first three times we find God getting angry in Scripture. It just so happens all three times are in the book of Exodus. And this is really (laughs) eye-opening. The first thing that we read at or look at is, is the first time God gets angry is in Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 through 15. It says, Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who, who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord, Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. But Moses said, Oh, my Lord, please, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know he can speak well. And look, he's also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, He will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. Now, this is really interesting to me. The first time we find God getting mad is at Moses, God's servant. And why is he getting mad? 
Why is he doing this? Because this, first of all, was not the first time that God or that Moses questioned God's um, desire. Uh, earlier it said, Moses questioned him, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? I send someone else. Who should, who should I say sent, sent me? Uh, what if they don't believe me, God? And what's interesting is that God, God just didn't like that Moses was questioning him. He says, I'm the creator of all these things. Do you not think that I can give you the power and the ability to speak, Moses? But I want you to notice this. Yes, his anger was kindled against Moses, but he didn't cancel Moses. He didn't say, Moses, you're dead to me. He didn't do that. What did he do? He says, well, okay, we'll let Aaron speak. You tell Aaron what to say, we'll let Aaron speak. And he was angry no more. So he's long-suffering. The second time that we see God getting angry is in Exodus chapter 15, verse 8. And this is just after the Red Sea had swallowed up the Egyptians, and Moses led the song, led the, the Israelites in a song, and this is a great song. And with the blast of your nostrils, I just love that. I mean, how, what tune would you sing that to, Emily? How would you sing that? <laughs> um, the waters were gathered together, the flood stood upright, and like a heap, the depths congealed in the heart of the sea. So when I first read this, I imagine, you know that cartoon character of the bull that gets so angry and there's like smoke coming out of his nose? <laughs> that is not the picture. It is not that at all. It's interesting that the word, the Hebrew word for long suffering means literally long in double nostrils <laughs> or long nosed. And it's simply a play on words to mean that he's long suffering, that he's slow to anger. And I just love that picture because God is, yeah, he's angry at Pharaoh. Why is he so angry at Pharaoh? Because the injustice. Man, there's a lot of injustice in our world today. And yes, we should be angry about it, but we should be slow to anger. We shouldn't be canceling people or saying, you're dead to me. God didn't do that. And so neither should we. Pharaoh had 10 chances to repent. Moses had four. Pharaoh had 10. 10. Pharaoh's a fool, man. Why'd you give him 10 chances to repent? I mean, I know that if I was God, I would have done it entirely different. And that's why I'm not God. That and many other reasons. Why, when he didn't repent, God dealt with the injustice fairly. I love what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is, this is the character of God. This is his attribute that he's, he's wanting all to come to repentance. He's wanting all to be part of the kingdom of God. And so he is slow to anger. The third time we see God's anger is in Exodus chapter 32, verse 10. Now, it's interesting. This time that we see him get angry is the most angry we ever see him getting. 
And it just so happens to be after the golden calf story that I shared about in the very beginning. Look what God says. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. Whoa, do you know who he's talking about? He's talking about the children of Israel. He's talking about those that he made a covenant with. My wrath may burn hot against you. May I consume you? Those are strong languages. Now, what's really interesting in Exodus 32, verse 14, it says, so the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Like, wait, how do you go from hot anger to relenting? How do, you, how do you go from one aspect so far in the pendulum swing all the way to the other side? Because Moses was their righteous intercessor. He's begging with God. God, remember your promises. Remember your covenant. Remember what you said, and the Lord relented. It's really a beautiful picture of our mediator, our intercessor, Jesus Christ interceding for you and me in that same way. Okay, you guys. Compassionate, gracious, long-suffering. Ready? Yahweh, Yahweh is compassionate, gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness. Now, this word goodness is a really wonderful word. If you knew the Hebrew word, you may, not, you may wonder, well, why'd they put abounding in it? Because that's what it means. The, the Hebrew word is hased. You heard this? It's often translated goodness, steadfast love, unfailing love, loving kindness, mercy, faithfulness, love, acts of kindness. Why, why, do they have to, why did the writers have to use so many different adjectives to define one word? Because there's not one word in the, in the language that can define God's said, his goodness. You have to use multiple um, ways in defining it. The classic task Test for, or, excuse me, the classic text for this is in Psalm 136, where that word is used over 26 times. His mercies are new every morning. You know that verse or that psalm? That's what that word is. It's hesed. And they're forever. So it's used 26 times in that psalms, but it's used over 240 times in the Old Testament. It's a repeated theme throughout the Old Testament of God's hesed, his loving kindness, his steadfast love, his unfailing love. It is a loyal love, one that is focused on behavior and action. It is a loyal love, and that is focused on behavior and action. In Psalm uh, 103, verses 8 through 13, it says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our inequities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward us who fear him. As far, I love this, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. It's the kind of love that shows in 
overflowing generosity and forgiveness. When my son was 16, we were out playing tennis one day, and I could tell, I could tell something was up. You know, he just wasn't his normal, jovial self. And, and so we played a little while, and then after a few moments, he says, you know, I'd really like to talk to you. And I'm like, okay. So we went and sat down, and he says, um, yeah, I just been really struggling with this, but I, I need you to know that I, I, I smoked pot. And you know, it's so funny. At that moment, I just reached over and smacked him. No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't do that at all. He's six foot three. He would have killed me. Um, <laughs> I didn't smack him. I was so moved with this, this, this love because he came and he, and he confessed to me. And he wanted to repent that I, all I could do was sit there and pray for him and give him forgiveness. And I just remember that day so clearly because that's how God is with us. There's nothing, as we'll see in a minute, there's nothing that can keep, it's a loyal love of the Father. Okay, here we go. Now we're gonna add goodness. Yahweh, Yahweh is compassionate, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and in truth. The, the Hebrew word truth there is emet. It's a feminine noun meaning faithfulness and trustworthy. This word just so happens to be used over 1,100 times in the Bible. And it's a very familiar word. Amen. In modern vernacular, it simply means true that right? <laughs> Amen. That's truth. That's what it is. So it's used 329 times in the Old Testament, 604 times in the New Testament, making it 1,100 times in the Bible. In other words, there's a theme threaded throughout the book from Genesis to Revelation of God's goodness, his faithfulness, and his truth. He's trustworthy. You can trust in him to accomplish those things. Psalm 18, Excuse me, Psalm 18.2 gives us a metaphor that is often used of God's um, truth or amen. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of salvation, my stronghold. This is how he is trustworthy and faithful in all of these things. So he's faithful, he's trustworthy to deliver us, to protect us, and to save us, no matter who or what we have done. And in all these things, this is God's character. So last time, Yahweh, Yahweh is compassionate, gracious, long-suffering in goodness and in faithfulness. And I left one out. That was very bad, but you got it. So after looking at these five attributes and seeing the goodness of God, then we come to the judgment of God. And we can see that through these attributes that he's not a distant, disconnected, angry, judgmental God in that sense. Until we get to this last one and you read this verse and you're like, he is judgmental. Not to me, but to my kids and my grandkids. Is that what he's saying? So let's take a minute and look at his judgment through the lens of his goodness. Exodus 34, verse 7 says, Forgiving inequity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, 
visiting the inequity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. So when you read this, you're like, yeah, that sounds pretty judgy. Oh my goodness, that's tough. But there's three things in here that we're gonna, we're gonna end on today to really develop this idea of the character of God and his attributes. That he's forgiving, he's just, and he will punish sin. The first one is that he's forgiving. Forgiving inequity and transgression and sin. Now you read that and you're like, okay, those are three, those are three words. You know, what do, what do they mean? You know what these mean? What these three words reveal is that there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing that you can do or say that God will not forgive you for. No matter if it's inequity, transgression, or sin, whatever it is, God is forgiving. He loves you so much. How do you know when, some, when giving or when forgiving is really forgiving. It's when it's giving. Giving is forgiving. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God so loved the world that he allowed his only begotten son to dwell among us for for a number of years before God fulfilled that promise of him being crucified on a cross and raised on the third day and then ascending to the Father, seated at his right hand, sending us the help of the Holy Spirit. For all those who repent and walk with him are forgiven from no matter what you've done. We read that psalm earlier saying that the, as far as the east is from the west. I just love that. How far is the east from the west? I don't know. It just keeps going. It's, it's, it's eternal. And so when we look at that, it's just so amazing. So giving is forgiving. The second thing is that he's just. By no means clearing the guilty. This is something I think is so important for us to understand today. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but there seems to be a lot of injustice in the world. Anybody else notice that? Am I the only one? No, right? There's a lot of injustice, and I want to see consequence now. Come on, Lord. Toast him. Isn't that what James and John said when they went through Samaria? Call down fire from heaven. These are sinful people. Well, yeah, that's the fleshly part, but that is not God. God isn't that way. God is saying, hey, listen, I am the just and the justifier. I know, I know everything that has happened in the past. I know everything that is happening presently. And I know everything that's going to be happening in the future. And trust me, I will be just to all the injustice. Just wait. Be patient. I'm being long-suffering. I want people to be saved I want people to come and know me. This is his goodness. Um, God in his goodness wants to do a good work, and he cannot clear the guilty unless there's repentance. And so he's giving people time to repent and to find those things. He can clear you on the basis of atonement that he himself made on the cross. Punishing sin. The last part of this is visiting the inequity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, this part, you go, okay, what's the goodness in that? 
So there's many doctrines that have been taught over the year, generational curse and, you know, all these different things. And I guess you could say, okay, I guess that's what they get to him. This is not a curse. This is a consequence. There's a difference. God is not cursing people. He's simply saying that if you continue in your sin and you don't repent, there's a consequence to your sin. And that consequence likely would be passed down to your children and even to your grandchildren. But this is, this is what's important to point out here. Keeping mercy for thousands and thousands. And then he's talking about generations, right? What's he talking about? He's talking about third and fourth thousands and thousands of generations. That's how far out his goodness extends. So when you really think about what he's saying there, this is truly a blessing. It is not a curse, but a consequence if there's no repentance. And I mean, this is so true in my own family. So my, my grandfather was an alcoholic. My father was an alcoholic. My, my brother's an alcoholic. I was on the, on the road of being an alcoholic as a young man. And then I met Jesus at the age of 31. And I'm not, a, I'm not an alcoholic. And you, you know what's so cool? Is my son's not an alcoholic. He still smokes pot. Nah, just kidding. <laughs> oh, man. He's going to kill me if he listens to this. He does not smoke pot still. <laughs> but he's not an alcoholic. And, and this is how God works. This is just how God is. Man, if we repent from sin, that consequence of our sin will likely not be passed down from generation to generation. And I use the word likely because God's sovereign, and he, he can do some things that sometimes can really surprise us, but he's doing them in a way that is for ultimate good or eternal good. You all know Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That word together is where we get our English word synergy, which means energy or strength. God is saying that, hey, all the good things, all the bad things, all the ugly things, they are working together for ultimate and eternal good. And so when you start looking at God's goodness through the lens, or when you start looking at life through the lens of God's goodness, you can see just how um, how kind, what his character is like. So I want to end with this today. And if the worship team wants to start coming up, is just really, I want you to think about what we are talking about in the character of God. Because there might be some people here today that are, you know, maybe, maybe they're a little bit like Pharaoh. They, you know, maybe you're coming to church, you're, you're wanting to know God, and there's, there's moments that you move really close to God. And you're like, yeah, I'm almost there. Or maybe you're like Saul. Maybe you're out persecuting Christians and, and whatever it is. Or maybe you're like a child of Israel, a, children, a child of Israel, and you're, you're worshiping an idol in your life, you know, um, which is maybe more common in the church than we think about. And, but wh why I bring that up is that like Moses was interceding for them, Jesus is interceding for you right now. And I think this is so important. You know, Jesus came to give us life and that more abundantly. And I, I believe that many people come to church today have life. They have eternal life. But they're not living an abundant life. Uh, um, can't think of what his name is right now. He, he wrote a book on spiritual depression. 
um, can't think of his name, but he, he called them miserable Christians, people that are just worried about the politics and worried and complaining about the things in the world, and they're just miserable. We're not to be miserable. We're to be joyful because God, look, we just look at his character, his attributes. So if, if any of you fall in that category right now, I'm going to pray for you, um, after they lead us in a song, but just to be thinking about it and to take a minute and just say, Lord, yeah, this is kind of me. Maybe I'm a Pharaoh type or I'm a, I'm a Saul or maybe I'm a child of Israel and I'm, I'm idol worshiping. Just as they sing this song, just to take that time and to ask the Lord to reveal that to you and then confess your sins to him that you may leave here experiencing that abundant life.